Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning with our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent your Son into the world, so he has sent us into the world to serve you. And to do that, we must be equipped with the whole armor of God and with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Equip us this morning, we pray, knowing and trusting that your word is that double-edged sword. May it penetrate our hearts, and may our hearts be softened to hear and understand, to receive and to respond. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text. Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. You can find this in your pew Bibles on page 946. Romans 11, 1 through 10. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This morning, we continue with our series working through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And since another month has passed since our last time in Romans, I'll begin with a brief recap of where we are in this section of the letter, chapters 9 through 11. Paul is dealing with the difficult problem that was facing the early church since the gospel was now going out to all the nations. The gospel had been embraced by many Gentiles, but rejected by the majority of God's chosen and beloved Old Covenant people, Israel. And so the question arises, has God's word failed? Has his promise to his people become null and void? And Paul's definitive answer to these questions is absolutely not. And in answering these questions, he has been careful to show that his response is based not only on the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles, but is primarily based on the Old Testament. And he quotes continually from Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. 
Chapter 9, he focused on God's sovereignty and salvation, how he works to elect and call those whom he freely and sovereignly chooses he will save. Then he focuses in chapter 10 on the means God uses to apply that salvation to us, how he grants us the gift of faith through the preaching of the word of God. That's what we saw last time. Now in chapter 11, he returns to focus on the people of Israel and specifically on the question of God's promises to them and how these promises are being worked out in Paul's day. As we work through the passage this morning, Paul may seem to be exploring what you may call abstract theological questions, questions that were of concern 2,000 years ago, and you may think they don't concern you today. However, I want to show that they do apply to you today as well. Because your very life, your very salvation depend on the answer to some of the questions that Paul is exploring in this passage. Questions like, is God a God who keeps his promises? Does he remain faithful always and forever? To put it simply, can you count on him? Of course, the answer to all of these questions is a resounding yes and amen. God does keep his promises. He is always faithful. You can count on him. We'll also see that there are certain parallels between the situation of the early church and our situation today. And so we have much to learn from this passage in Romans 11 this morning. We'll work through the passage under three headings this morning. First, the question. Second, the application to Paul's day. And then the application to our situation today. First, the question. Has God rejected his people? Paul's answer, absolutely not. Before we get to chapter 11, we should recall how chapter 10 concluded. And here it's helpful to keep in mind, in the original letter, there's no chapter divisions. Those are added later to help us see the logical breaks breaks in the letter, but these two chapters are connected. Now, at the end of chapter 10, Paul was speaking of how God had revealed the gospel to Israel. And he says, Israel had heard the gospel. They had understood it, and yet, for the great majority of Israel, they had rejected it. And so he closes the chapter with a scathing quote from the prophet Isaiah, the final verse. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, Israel had rejected their God, even though God was holding out his hands to them. But now Paul turns the tables when he opens chapter 11 with this rhetorical question. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, in light of Israel's rejection of their God, has God in turn abandoned and rejected them? Is this the end of the line for Israel? Is their story over? Is God finished with them once and for all? Paul responds with the strongest possible negative. By no means. Absolutely not. Then he builds the case for this response. First, he presents himself. Exhibit A. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Clearly, God has not abandoned his people if there continue to be those who are saved by grace among them. And Paul says, I myself am an example of this. He lists briefly here his Jewish credentials. Even though he's no longer trusting in his Jewish heritage, but in Jesus Christ to save him, he explores this even more thoroughly in Philippians 3, 3 through 9. And quote that here. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And yet his Jewish heritage is a testimony that God has not utterly forsaken the Jews He still has a plan for them, and he is still faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, God still saves Israelites in the very same way he had always saved them. In the same way that Abraham was saved, as Paul demonstrated back in Romans chapter 4, through faith in the Messiah. In the past, that was through faith in the Messiah who was to come. Now it's through faith in the Messiah who has come. It's not that God has changed. It's not that God's promises have failed. It's simply that the long-awaited Messiah has come. And so Paul testifies concerning himself in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And if Christ came to save a great sinner, the chief of sinners like Paul, he can save you too if you put your trust in him. And he will save any Israelite who trusts in him as well. So Paul puts himself forward as exhibit A. Then he presents exhibit B, the Old Testament example of a remnant. Remember, the question is, has God rejected his people Israel? Has he given up on them? In verse 1, he answers it in the negative, by no means. Then verse 2, he puts it in the positive. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I've seen this term for no before in Romans. And there we said that it meant that God 
set his love on a person beforehand, before the foundation of the world. For knowledge was the beginning of that great chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So back there, when Paul spoke of personal foreknowledge, it was clear that this is something absolutely certain. It surely leads to salvation and all the way to glorification. Yet when it comes to corporate foreknowledge, foreknowledge of all Israel, we must recognize that this is something different, something distinct. Because while Paul made it clear that Israel is God's chosen, his beloved people, he's also made it clear that not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is personally elect, personally foreknown unto salvation. And yet because Israel as a people, as a nation, is foreknown, foreloved, God will always preserve a remnant, as Paul goes on to demonstrate here. So let's see now exhibit two, continuing verse 2b. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here, Paul is picking up the story of Elijah from 1 Kings 19, which we read earlier. Elijah's living during the reign of the wicked king Ahab, his wife Jezebel. They had sought to lead Israel away from the worship of the Lord to worship that fat false god, Baal. And the Lord had had this great triumph over the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. And yet soon afterward, Elijah had fallen into a deep depression. He feared for his life. He fled to, it calls it Mount Hora, but you know, that's the same as Mount Sinai, where the Lord meets him. As he says to the Lord, he believes he is the last one remaining faithful to the Lord. The Lord reassures him. There remains a remnant 7,000 strong. That might not seem like a large number when you compare it to over a million Israelites that had come out of Egypt. But if you go back further, remember the Lord started with one man, Abraham. And his wife beyond childbearing years. And the Lord promised to turn them into a mighty nation with descendants as numerous as the stars. He can certainly start again with 7,000. It's no challenge for the Lord. The Lord preserves a remnant. And so Paul takes this concept of a remnant and applies it to the situation of his day. Verse 5. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There is a remnant of Israelites who had put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, just like Paul had. Paul does not comment here on that number 7,000. It's interesting to meditate on that number for a moment. According to Acts chapter 4, there were already 5,000, it says, men, male converts, to the faith in Jerusalem within a few weeks of Pentecost. If we take into account their wives, their children, by the time Paul is writing this letter some 25 years later, 
Perhaps we could estimate some 20, 30,000 Jewish believers at the time. These are very rough numbers. But we compare that to the estimates that there were roughly 4 million Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire at this time. 20, 30,000 believers is a small remnant. Perhaps one half of 1% of the Jews of that day. So you can understand why Paul grieves at the unbelief of his fellow Jews. And yet, God preserves a remnant. Just as he preserved his people through their bondage in Egypt, just as he preserved a remnant in Elijah's day, just as he preserved his people through their exile in Babylon. God continues to be faithful to his promises, to show love to his people. And he continues to preserve his people today, even as Christ has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Paul concludes verse 5 by pointing out that this remnant is chosen by grace. And he builds on this in verse 6. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Can you figure out the theme of these verses? Paul repeats the theme word four times in two verses. Grace. It is all of grace, not on the basis of works. Grace is the unmerited, or even better, the demerited favor of God. That is, he shows us favor when we deserve the opposite. We deserve his wrath, but he shows us his favor. And Paul is setting up the stark contrast here between God's grace and our works. If salvation were based on our works, then we would earn our salvation based on what we do. And it would not be by grace, nor would it be God's Salvation, God saving us. Rather, we would be saving ourselves. And that's no gospel. And that's certainly not what the scriptures teach. Scriptures teach that we are dead in our sins, unable to do anything pleasing to God, unable to do anything but sin, utterly incapable of saving ourselves. And so God grants us the salvation that we do not deserve simply by Grace. And Paul says this applies just as much for the Jews as it does for the Gentiles. As he wrote back in Romans 3 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So it's true, the Jews are God's chosen and beloved people. But that does not mean that they are any less sinners, any less in need of a Savior, any less in need of God's grace to grant them salvation. And so salvation is by grace alone, received by faith alone. And as we saw last time, the means God has chosen for working this faith in the human heart is through the preaching of the gospel. And that gospel had been clearly heard by the Jews through their scriptures, the Old Testament, and then even more clearly through the coming of Jesus Christ, through the gospel he preached during his earthly ministry, and then expanded upon through the preaching of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, and then written down in the New Testament scriptures. 
And that is the same gospel that I am preaching to you this morning. Repent of your sins and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved, Jew and Gentile alike. So far, Paul has been focusing on the positive implications of Israel's continuing status as God's chosen and beloved people. The positive implication is that he has preserved a remnant among them, those whom he has granted faith in Christ unto eternal life. Now in verse 7, he transitions to focus on the negative implications for those who are not among this remnant. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Here Paul is restating briefly what he had said earlier in chapter 9, 30 to 32. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, the Jews were pursuing salvation through works righteousness, but this can never work. This is a road to destruction, whereas faith in Jesus Christ is the pathway to salvation. And continuing in verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so Paul here is dividing Israel into two parts, the elect remnant who obtained salvation by faith in Christ and the rest. He says the rest were hardened. You may also remember that language of hardening from chapter 9 where Paul writes, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. In that context, he is referring first of all to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, who not only hardened his own heart, it also says the Lord hardened his heart. And we explored this in more depth in sermons, both on Romans 1, but also on Romans 9, how one of God's punishments for sin, for those who harden their heart against God and continue unrepentantly in their sin, is that God will further harden the heart to plunge sinners into ever greater depths of sin. And here Paul says that judgment now applies to the rest of Israel, those who have spurned their long-awaited Messiah. This may have been shocking to some of his readers. And yet, as Paul goes on to demonstrate, this certainly is not the first time severe judgment will fall on God's people. Paul supports this conclusion with his practice following his common practice of quoting from all three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So verse 8, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This first quotation is a combination of two similar verses from Deuteronomy 29.4, in Isaiah 29.10. And as you can see, this curse will make Israel unable to hear, see, or understand. 
And yet this is a judgment for having heard and understood the gospel and yet refusing to receive it. And so the punishment fits the crime. And Paul continues by quoting Psalm 69 in verses 9 and 10. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they they cannot see and bending their backs and bend their backs forever. In the original psalm, David is praying against his enemies. This is also a messianic psalm which is fulfilled in many ways by Christ on the cross. And so Paul is taking David's enemies now to be the enemies of Christ, those who have rejected the gospel of Christ. We can see parallels to the previous quotation, the references to eyes darkened so that they cannot see. There's a further curse here concerning the table. And we really see the contrast when you compare it to what David writes in Psalm 23.5. You know the verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now the table, which should be a place of abundance, of joy and of blessing, is made into a snare, a trap, a stumbling block. What Paul is most likely seeing in this verse is that the law in which the the Jews put so much trust, the law in which they delighted, has become a snare. It is now their downfall. They were trying to earn their own salvation by the works of the law, but they had actually stumbled over the stumbling block. The law was meant to show them their sin and to point them to Christ who had fulfilled the law on their behalf. And they had rejected the Savior. They had rejected the one who had fulfilled the law. And in the end, they had become cursed. And so Paul says, they were hardened in their unbelief. But even so, Paul's answer to the question, has God rejected his people, is absolutely not. He has not rejected his people whom he had foreknown. His promises have not failed, for God has preserved a remnant. Let's consider application for us today. First of all, we must remember that we trust in the same God who continues to keep his promises. He is still faithful and he always will remain faithful. And even as he preserved a remnant in Paul's day, he continues to preserve a remnant of believing Jews even to this day. He also has promised that he will preserve his church until the day when Jesus Christ returns. What about the concept of a remnant for the church more generally today? Are not our days in some way similar to Paul's own? We live in a country with a rich Christian heritage. I'm not saying we should think that we are God's chosen nation or that in some way the United States is equivalent to biblical Israel. And yet when we consider the past century or two, we look at the church buildings dotting all around us in northwest New Jersey, they recall a time when biblical Christianity was much stronger in our country. The history of both our denomination and our own congregation 
They tell the same story of larger churches that departed from biblical orthodoxy. And then faithful believers were forced to leave and start over to remain true to the gospel. And yet each time, what was the result? God preserved a remnant. And let us not despise what appears small in our own eyes. The Lord can make the small to become mighty. From the mustard seed grows a tree, and birds shelter in its branches. And from the small piece of leaven, the whole lump is leavened. Furthermore, let us not be too focused on our own country, our own culture, even though Christianity may be on the decline in the U.S., we hear encouraging reports of growth in other places around the world. Christ continues to build his church. His kingdom is advancing as we continue to pray and to worship, to give and to go and make disciples. And every person who puts his faith in Christ is incorporated into Christ, incorporated into that one family tree and made a son of Abraham, the man of faith. That tree will continue to grow and spread, and it will include people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Jesus Christ will receive all glory and power and honor forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, We give you thanks and praise that you are the God who keeps your promises, that you remain always faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you continue to demonstrate your love to your people, both to your old covenant people, Israel, and that even as you promised to Abraham that All the nations would be blessed in him. You now show how that is being worked out as your gospel goes out to all the nations of the earth, to the very ends of the earth. And we thank you that we have been blessed in Abraham and in his greater son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the gospel has been proclaimed even here this morning, and we are blessed in it. We thank you that you continue to preserve your people And even those times when it was a mere remnant, maybe one, maybe thousands, whatever the number may be, you have continued to build your church. And the fact that we are here believing in you this morning is is a reminder that you are always faithful and you always keep your word. Or maybe be encouraged this morning by these truths, maybe be built up and prepare us even now as we come to the table, a sign and seal of your covenant of grace, that grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.